There we go. I just figured out that I probably need to hit the uh, unmute button in order to be able to talk. Uh, kind of important. The things you learned about Twitter spaces. All right. I am trying to find Mr. Reese. He's not in the room. But as soon as Mr. Reese gets here, we're going to start. Until then, let's Kanye it up. Oh. There goes Mr. Reese. All right, Mr. Reese, you there? Check one, two. All right, brother, can you hear me? I got you. Everybody thumbs up if you can hear Mr. Reese, so I'm not the only person here. There we go. We got David. All right. So... Um, hit the share button. Make sure everybody comes to the room. I see we got some requests already. Y'all, we haven't even started talking yet. We're going to get there in just a second. Let me introduce my guest, Mr. David Reese, CEO of Armored Republic. They sell body armor, keep you from getting bullets, piercing your skin. It's getting crazy out there. So you might want to buy some body armor from him. Um, and also the pastor of Puritan Reformed Church and a husband. David, if I remember correctly, five kids? Six kids. Six. I forgot the little guy. Doggone it. He, Tell him I'm sorry. Uh, he's cute, and I don't think he'll be offended. So I think we're good. Okay. <laughs> All right, David. So here's what I want to do. Here's the three-part system I have for this. And you tell me if this is right. I, I just thought I might have a little bit of a um, a funky problem in this. But here's what I want to do. All the rage right now is Christian nationalism and I think national identity as a whole. And what I want to do, when I was talking to you about this, maybe it was a year and a half ago, I think you said, man, how come nobody is talking about national covenanting? And you gave me this book called National Covenanting, Christ's Victory Over the Nation by Brian Schwartley. I think it's right. That's right. You have exactly right. And it's a fantastic book, by the way. Okay. And it is a fantastic book, but the more I keep going through it, I was like, I think I need to work this out myself. So let's talk, let's have this three parts. What is Christian nationalism is the first section I want to work through. How does it compare to our current, not Christian nationalism, I'm sorry. What is national covenanting? See, it's already got me. How, what is the current system that we have now and how would they, how would they, it overlay in comparison? And then the third thing I want to talk about is how do we get from our current system to national covenanting if it's the way forward so let's start first with what is national covenanting so national covenanting recognizes the reality that god has ordered human life in terms of our social relationships by covenants and so we think about our relationship with god and our relationship with god is 
governed by a covenantal structure. And so we need to understand what is it that, that a covenant is, first of all. A covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So it's a bond, which means it's formed by swearing. It's in blood, which means it's a life or death thing. And it's sovereignly administered, which means God defines it sovereignly, and he defines the administration of it. He defines the way it works. He defines the economy of it. So that's true in terms of how we interact with God. But also what I find is a lot of people want to appeal to some sort of idea of a, a natural law that is somehow different or differently derived rather than the law of God that is revealed to us in Scripture and the law of God that he gave by writing it on the heart in unfallen man. And so sometimes people by natural law, they simply mean the law of God. Other times they mean something else. Sometimes they mean to be talking about sort of here you can get law of God from Scripture, and here you can get law of God by looking around at things. And what I'm trying to say is, as long as we mean they're the same thing, and as long as we mean that the only infallible authority is Scripture, great. So a covenant is established by God in terms of how he deals with his relations with man, first with Adam in the garden with the covenant of works, and then, after the fall, in Genesis 3, we have the covenant of grace. Now, in the very beginning, God gave a covenant uh, where Adam was given authority over the earth, over the creatures. And so he has dominion. Then he establishes the household and he gives the husband authority over the wife. There is in that also, in the formation of marriage, he establishes secession. Secession is in the very establishment of marriage. What you have is children who are born to a father and mother. They are under the authority of that father and mother. And when a child leaves their father and mother to cleave to a spouse, that covenanting act does two things. It has a declaration of independence leaving the home, and it forms as a charter a new household. And so those are governments. Now, marriage is a declaration of independence and the formation of a charter for a new government. Now, furthermore, what we see is that God then establishes also the church in terms of a body that is distinct from the world. And what we have initially is the church in an unfallen condition. We have the church after the fall, where there is no separation from the world. And then when the death of, of, of Abel occurs at Cain's hand, what you have is the church as a covenant institution is distinct from the world at the end of Genesis 4. And we then see the establishment of the state in Genesis 9 with Noah. And so the giving of the sword establishes the state. And so those four institutions are the covenant institutions where all authority exists, where one man has authority over another, or where we have authority in order to govern the earth. And so those institutions mm -hmm. of the individual, the household, the church, and the state are the grants of authority that have been given by God to man. And what I'm really worried about when we talk about um, natural law or something like that, or which seem to draw, derive relationships that are binding from something other than those covenant institutions that God has established in his word is that we start to mix things. We have improperly ordered 
sort of affections and we make it so we don't really know what the proper limits of power are. And so I would say when we look at national covenanting, what we're talking about is a bond in blood sovereignly administered in terms of the civil sphere. And when we talk about the word nation, which is going to closely relate to the idea of, of nationalism and is also going to closely relate to the idea of uh, Christian nationalism, when we talk about those things versus sort of a, a national covenanting, depending on how you define them, they can be the same, they can be an agreement, or they can differ. And so the definition of terms is always important here. Um, and my concern is not so much to do anything to make it, I don't want to dissuade somebody from necessarily calling themselves a Christian nationalist. It's sort of like, do I prefer to call myself a fundamentalist? No, I have different labels I prefer. But I'll tell you what, if a liberal asks me if I'm a fundamentalist, you bet I am. And, <laughs> and so, so if I'm talking, if I'm talking to a liberal, you know, what they mean is, do you believe in those crazy things like the infallibility of the scriptures or the virgin birth of Christ or substitutionary atonement? And the answer is yes, absolutely. So that's why I think, you know, when somebody wants to tar you with some label that unites you with the people of God, okay, great, you take it. Um, but then if you're talking with the people of God and you're trying to rightly define things and be careful, you do all that. And so I think I want to be very clear to say that national covenanting assumes the fact that every sphere is under the authority of God and it has to obey his law. And there is no authority apart from the law of God. And so the law of God establishes all authority, and the state, the civil sphere, must be explicitly Christian, or it is in rebellion against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, you done? Uh, I, you I, 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 I can go else? for a couple more hours. <laughs> all right. So um, can you help me understand Okay, let me try and reframe this a little bit. So, and when I look, when I think of national covenanting, I'm looking at all um, four governments, all the governments that God has created, the, the family, the church, and the state. Would you throw in the individual government yes, as right. well? In that? Okay. Um, all of those are already under a form of covenant, That's right? right? And so when it comes to operating within the nation, we... How do those overlap into each other to govern a nation? Right. So when we think about um, when we think about the individual, we're governed by the law of God. But at the same time, we engage in acts of covenanting with God. When you bap when you're baptized, there's a covenant that's that's uh, being affirmed. It's not as though the covenant of grace is being instituted there, right? The covenant of grace is being affirmed, so we're covenanting. Um, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're covenanting, right? There's this there's this renewal of covenant that occurs. And so when we think about the household, the household is formed by the exchanging of oaths. And those oaths exist in terms of a husband and wife exchanging marital oaths, or it can be adoption of a child, which occurs as a covenantal act. And there's a symbol of renewal for the father and the mother. There's a symbol of renewal for the husband and wife, and that's what the sexual relationship is. It's the covenant sign for that, so there's a renewal there. And so we think about the idea of the church, and we have entry covenant baptism, we have renewal covenants, we have uh, the idea of, of the Lord's Supper. And with national covenanting, when people join the nation, they are either born into it and are therefore uh, covenantally bound. They join in and they take an oath to join that nation. Or uh, when they're entering into public office, public authority, they should take an oath. And so they are swearing that covenant. And so this idea of 
the 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 covenant it exists god establishes he institutes the authority of the individual household church and state but then when we're when we're looking at our lives one of the means of sanctification is the act of covenanting and so we we have acts of covenanting that exist in our nation but we don't recognize them as covenanting we don't realize that in the united states of america what happened is the declaration of independence was for us a document that established our separation and it gave the be the basis for our independent existence and so it's a covenantal document and the constitution is a covenantal document about how to govern and the declaration of independence is more explicitly christian than the constitution is uh, the Constitution references Sunday as a day where vetoes are, uh, you know, not going to be having the clock tick down on them. And, you know, there's this idea of common law, which is incorporation of the Bible, uh, because common law is the law that's common to the nations, the general equity. Um, and so we have those sorts of principles that's in there. But you know what? We should have done a way better job. And there should have been a way more explicit Christian covenant for our country with how Christian our country was. Um, okay. I want to get into that as we start talking about overlaying national covenanting with uh, our current situation. But I want to go back just for a second here to something you said earlier, because I think citizenship is a huge part of this. Some of the pushback that I think my Christian nationalist brothers have gotten from people who are opposed to any sort of national covenanting Christian nationalism are, are that, hey, how do people who are not Christian become part of the nation? Because if you have a if national covenant is what you're talking about, you're primarily talking about covenanting with christ and so as it would be a nation that is christian how do people who are non-christians be part become part of a nation or live in an in a national covenanting environment yeah so the idea of of the nation uh when we're when we're talking about this this is this becomes sort of the the key question right so inside of nationalism there's really sort of three major categories in which people have tried to define the nation um, and sometimes people try to mix them all. So when you look at the, the movement of nationalism, right, the movement of nationalism was this idea that we should see people who have a shared culture, a shared language, a shared ancestry, um, and perhaps shared natural borders. They should become a, a people together that is a common market with common defense, um, and they should have a common government with a shared highest court and a shared highest congress you know and so you have this sort of idea of the of, of the nation and the state being unified so the nation state comes out of that idea and so the desire to see a nation that's unified is one thing and so then how do you join that nation and the nation um and whether you how you join it you're gonna you're gonna end up looking at how you join in sort of the same way that you think of what the definition of the nation is. And so when you, when you see the three definitions, people will sometimes try to say, well, to be a part of a nation, you have to ethnically or genetically or by your ancestry be tied to that body. Or they'll say that to be a part of that nation, you need to have the shared culture. And typically language is sort of the tip of the spear on that. It's the most practical thing. Um, and sometimes you're also going to say um, something like maybe it's just the civil sphere. So you can try to merge all of those or you can say, if you come under the same civil authority, then you're a part of that same nation. Um, and some of these things obviously are very complex in themselves, like the word culture. I mean, we all know that culture is religion externalized, right? It's, it's philosophy externalized. What you believe turned into 
artifacts, behaviors, shared common beliefs, so kind of patterns of language, all that kind of stuff. So, so when we talk about culture, that by itself is complex as well. And we all know that we're trying to make a Christian culture, right? So if we make culture the unifier, then you can see how if we're trying to have a Christian culture, that would start to make this sort of identification becomes very difficult in terms of having any sort of separated civil bodies. So my understanding of the Bible is that we see states are established in Genesis 9, um, and what we have there is the rightful use of the sword being given to avenge. The special power of the state is not defense. The special power of the state is vengeance. And vengeance manifests itself in two ways, right? Everybody has the right to defend themselves. There's an imminent danger. You can defend yourself. That avenging manifests itself in going after people when they're no longer a danger in order to punish them with coercive power. And that occurs through public due process. And there's also war, which is defensive in some ways, but it's also a judicial act. And so that, that is the special power of the state. So we go, okay, how do you join a nation? And I think we have to look at what the Bible does in terms of dealing with nations and dealing with states. So we have the establishment of the state in Genesis 9. And what we see is a special nation that gets established in some ways in Genesis 12 with the calling out of Abraham. And, and then you have him sort of forming a, a household that's separated out. Genesis 15, he's given the covenant. Genesis 17, he's given the sign of the covenant, circumcision. And you see him wage war with his 300 and something catechized men. And he forms a covenant with three neighboring households. And they go on a war path to go save Lot after he gets kidnapped out of Sodom by a band of kings. And so Abraham leads this, you know, night raid with a, a forced march in which he goes on an, you know, an offensive action, flanks this army, uh, does a night ambush, defeats them, takes all their stuff and frees all the people, gives the stuff back to the other kings and says, I don't want anybody to say the king of Sodom made me rich, right? So that's sort of this, this, this approved act of warfare that we see by Abraham. And so how, how was that formed? How was that nation formed? Well, it was formed by a covenanting act. And that covenanting act involved God giving a covenant and then a sign of the covenant where all the men were circumcised. Now, if we look back at the, the nations in terms of uh, the way they get referred to earlier on, we end up with we had the Tower of Babel earlier, where humans are all gathering together under these like illegal empires like Nimrod, trying to pull in everybody and to subjugate them and to give them forced labor. And so, you know, one of the ways that you can come under the authority of some power is by being conquered. And Nimrod was not a great person to be conquered by. And being a part of Babylon was not a particularly fantastic civil order to be a part of. And so God looks at that and he causes the breakup of that empire by using language as a barrier to the centralization of human power. He breaks up that empire and he does it by giving different languages and he forms the 70 nations. So we want to look at nations in the broad sense. We look at the origin of them in terms of the state. We can look at them in the origin of them in terms of the table of nations. And so there's those 70 nations being formed by the linguistic breakup. And there's also the nations that uh, we see in terms of the godly nation with Abraham and this idea of a civil covenanting. And later on, when you look at them going into Egypt and being enslaved 
the Hebrews being enslaved by Egypt. There's a pulling out of those people by the mighty hand of God, and God has a constitutional formation occurring in terms of he gives the Ten Commandments and he gives the Mosaic order. And he also gives a constitutional order for the, for the division of power, and he has the system in, Genesis, in Exodus 18 of the you know, one elder per ten, one elder per fifty, one per hundred, one per thousand. And so you have that with, with Jethro. So how do people join in this thing? You also see that in Exodus 12. And Exodus 12 lays out the Passover. And so the Passover is given as a renewing act of covenant. We have the Circumcision Act as an entry act. We have the Passover given as a renewal act. And it talks about how if anybody wants to be a part of this covenant renewal, they need to first go through the entry ritual. And it talks about the children who are there. And so those would be circumcised in the house. And then there are those who are aliens in the land, those that are dwelling in your midst. And if they want to be able to be a part of the covenant, they need to do the entry ritual. And then they need to be allowed to come to the renewal ritual after instruction. And so this idea of circumcising, catechizing, and bringing to the Passover table is obviously moved in the New Covenant era to baptism, catechizing, and bringing to the Lord's table. And so what we, what we look at in the New Covenant era is this is a thing that is meant for the nations, whereas circumcision and catechizing and Passover were specifically for the Old Covenant nation. Now this, we have this international order that's portable, and it's designed to go to the nations. So in a Christian nation, if you wanted to be a part of that group which is able to govern, you want to be a man in Israel, you want to be able to vote in terms of having a civil order, what you do is you covenant to enter. And in covenanting, you are making an acknowledgement of Christ, you are being baptized, and what you're doing is you're also acknowledging in terms of the the public order, you're acknowledging the authority of Christ over that nation. And so that makes it so there's an entry in. And one of the concerns that people have, if you start to think, well, are we just going to allow anybody to come and covenant in? Well, you don't, if you look at the Israel, the order that was given to Israel, the order that was given to Israel did not allow people to immediately participate in the congregation as men who ruled. It did not immediately allow them to be counted as a man in Israel who could elect their own officers. You see this idea of waiting to come into the temple until the third generation for the most friendly of nations. And so if you got a guy... Yeah, that was, that was yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I see that even with, we were just reading that last night with my kids, you know, <laughs> I think it was the Moabites and I can't remember who else, but eight uh, Egypt was allowed to come in faster than the Moabites. The Moabites were to be extinguished, <laughs> like exterminated. Uh, they were done. So yeah, I remember, th I remember that. So David, help me with something. Uh, I'm sorry. I'll let you finish your thought. And I have a couple questions I want to throw out you but quick. No, so just to recap the whole thing, it's essentially this, you join by covenanting and you don't exercise power in the first generation. And that allows there mm. to be a catechizing that goes across generations. And so that third generation is the same as a native born in the land. And so this allows there to be no racism at all. It's entirely about the covenantal status. And at the same time, there's a transitional period for people to come in and to be a part of that order for rule. And so, you know, we all think we have to discover these new things as though God hasn't told us everything we need to know. And what we need to do is we need to go back and read the Torah. So I, I, I think they just fell on some very... 
Are you saying that there's no voting first generation at all inside of national covenanting? No, I, I don't think that that's the order that we see established. Now, I think that there's a wisdom in why God did that. I think the reason God did that is to make it so that you can let people in who make profession and covenant with the judgment of charity based upon, do they understand the information? Are they giving you some evidence? And, and then at the same time, you know that they got to maintain good standing and they've got to be able to pass that on. And then the next generation needs to take the covenant for themselves. And the next generation needs to take the covenant for themselves. And so that idea that you, you, they are, they are under the same law order and there's a transitional period and that transitional period makes it so that there's an ability to not have the civil order dramatically overturned. And if you don't have a welfare state and you don't have this like all of a sudden dramatic overturning of, of the voting population, then there's a stability that exists and it allows for the preservation of that covenant and gives time for catechizing and educating of people so that you can make sure that the Christian order that has been attained to is not lost by a fast turning over the cart. So what 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 do you do with the cultural sensitivities that we have right now that are you going to let a generation go here that has taxation with no representation? Yeah, so taxation without representation, uh, that phraseology, which is an important part of American history, is, you know, people people act like that means if you don't have the vote, you can't be taxed. That is not at all what was meant in the founding era. Uh, the, the idea that you could, there were people who paid taxes who didn't have the vote. The issue was they didn't have any representatives in a legislature that was making the decision. And the American position was not that taxation without representation uh, meant that you know we wanted to have like Massachusetts representatives in the British Parliament. The claim was this: the British Parliament has no authority here because they are the legislature of the people of Britain. And Britain is the Isle of Britain. And Massachusetts is not a part of the Isle of Britain. And what has happened historically is a charter was given by the king where the king was acknowledged as the chief executive of Massachusetts. And then a legislature of men from Massachusetts were the ones who were acting as the legislature. So it would be like the, the, the claim, the, the, the popular phrase, no taxation without representation, was like saying if, if California tried to tax Arizona, which I am in the, the great state of Arizona, and we are being invaded by Californians who like to vote in such a way as to turn us into California. And so we have to deal with that problem. And so what we have is this idea that there, if we had the, the California legislature imposing a tax on Arizona, the people of Arizona right. should say, no taxation without representation. You have no right to impose a tax here. You have no legitimate authority. Our own legislature imposes our taxes. That was the context of that. It wasn't some general statement implying universal suffrage for everybody from cradle onward. So, okay, but you, you would have a whole generation of people that wouldn't feel represented inside of... I think the way that people use it now, it's like we got a group of people now who are citizens who don't have voting rights. Yeah. So is citizenship uh, tied up in voting? Is the identity of being a citizen tied up in voting? Um, and, I, and I think that we can obviously see that 
in our own tradition, originally you had things like property requirements and you had age requirements. And, and so there were things besides that, uh, besides simply being a citizen. Um, and so the same arguments are used in advocacy for the idea of universal suffrage in terms of, you know, should men be the ones who represent their households in the civil sphere or not? So I'm glad that you're allowing me to talk about everything that will make everybody hate me forever. This is good to get it all out there all at once. <laughs> it's, it's unique. I think it's, it's some of the things that people are talking about in Christian nationalism, I don't think is addressing all the stuff that uh, some of the things we're talking about. I think and that's what makes people afraid of what people mean by Christian nationalism. It, and I'm trying to start with what the things that are most familiar to us and work our way through. And if we're Christians, we should be thinking about this extremely biblically. Right. And so that's the thing I want to challenge, too. Like, are we thinking about this biblically? Does our Bible actually deal with these situations? It's so funny, David. You start talking about Christ to Christians about taxation and they have no theology for what is the right amount of money that your government should be taking from you. There's no theology for that. So I at least want to work through some of the things and say, well, there are answers and we might disagree with them. But can we at least use the Bible as a standard for having these conversations? So here's, here's where I want to go to next. Um, cause I think I kind of want to lay this all here, out here. We'll probably do a couple more of these to work through these ideas cause it's, it's heavy, but I want to go back to the covenanting part and I want to talk about states and our, uh, kind of our current setup of government right now, um, and how that would look because the way that you become, the way you get into covenant, we see it through the uh, individual marries a person. There's a covenant made there. You come into church, there's a covenant made there. Uh, even internation, there's a, there's a covenant made there. Um, but when we have separate our separate states that we have, and then we also have a federal a government, how does that work inside of national covenanting where you have these separate states and what they are versus the the whole and how they relate to each other? Um, yeah. and, and I guess part of what I'm asking too is like, so then does it does national covenanting have a structure where you have a Congress and a president and a SCOTUS? Is that all built together? Uh, um, inside of national covenanting. Yeah, so when we, when we look at the, the political order that exists in the scriptures, what we see is um, the basis for federal union. So the word federal comes from the Latin word fortis, which means to covenant. And so we, we have this idea of the federal government is a covenantal government, right? That's our own history. And then we have the idea of sovereign entities, states that are covenanted together and they share in a constitutional order. And so that, that is a covenant that is between the states and the people. Um, both of them are involved in that. And so the covenant was designed to recognize mediating institutions. We talk about federalism and we think about uh, the kind of the layers of government. And that is an important part of it. But the reason we should think about the layers of government in terms of the federal system is because they are covenanted together. So there's a unifying covenant. And there's also in the covenant a recognition of authority that is at different layers. And so the order that exists in terms of the Bible, you see very plainly that the nation of Israel had the tribes that were federated together. And in, our, in that federated uh, union, between the tribes, there is a, below that, a system of governments in terms of what we would think of now, uh, you know, the tribes are sort of the equivalent of states for us. And then you also have 
sort of the, the clans, which represent essentially what we think of as counties. And one of the other things that gets dealt with is the, the county system in the Bible has the town that is the center of that zone. And that town is where the seat is of that county. And you have issues in terms of governmental issues um, in the surrounding area being dealt with in terms of that kind of county seat. So our system in, uh, in America is very much uh, based upon that. And so you had, you know, a Presbyterian who was heavily involved in authoring uh, the Constitution. And uh, when we have that, that structure and we look at Israel, it's very familiar in what we see in our own nation. Now, in terms of seeing that, that union, that federated union, you then have the election of officers and we are used to now a very centralized democracy where there's one member of the House of Representatives to represent, you know, 600 or 700,000 people in a district. And Patrick Henry, uh, in the debates about the adoption of the Constitution, um, one of the things that he expressed in terms of the rats that he smelled uh, was he said he was concerned that the way it was written, that you could have very large populations being represented by a single representative uh, in the House. And so as opposed to having localized representation, having sort of a, a very large district. And when you have a large district, what you do is you end up making the special interests of a district more powerful and you remove the representation and the speaking ability of persons. And you also eliminate the election based upon character that occurs. And so very local representation is very important. So the Bible establishes uh, like a neighborhood council where you elect one man for every 10 households. And then from there, those guys elect guys to go to the one for 50. And so the idea is you have people you know closely, they have to work together and they choose from amongst themselves the guy to send to the next layer. And so you have this process of people being chosen by people who know them closely. And, and this is all in recognition of the covenantal unity, sending people up to represent along the way. So fathers represent their wives and children. And then you have from there the guy that represents the neighborhood. And then you have from there the guy that represents the wider neighborhood. And you keep going up. And so that system of representation, it's democratic in the sense that there's an election of people. And, you know, historically, the, the word democratic didn't require universal suffrage. It's the election by those who represent the, the people going all the way down. So a guy represents his household and you elect going up. So all the people are represented there. So it's democratic elections, but the, the government is not democracy. It's republic. It's an order a system of law. And that system of law has officers who are elected through representational process. And so then from there, you look at what, how the powers are given out and you don't really have an active legislature because God's given the law. And so you're not constantly writing laws. What you really have is more judging that's occurring. So the elected people are typically dealing with judgment. And then you choose from those councils. What you see is there are two offices that get referenced a lot, the prince and the scribe. And we hear about those being referred to in terms of in America, in terms of Presbyterianism, you hear things like the moderator and the clerk. Okay, but when you see there's a prince of the tribe, and a scribe, those guys, that's the moderator of the council and the guy who is responsible for record keeping and for communication. Those guys work together. And so the guy who is the moderator of the council 
is the guy who takes responsibility for emergency actions. And guess what? He's judged by his peers and he's able to be removed from power. They can call an emergency session and remove him at any time. And so the executive actions are emergency actions, which doesn't mean he has unlimited power. It just means generally his responsibility is to not take action. And so if he's going to take action, it needs to be looked at and called to account. And so things like dealing with executive power are done by a guy who's being judged by other governors and who sits amongst them and they can remove him. And that doesn't require some dramatic thing. It doesn't require a trial. The idea is they could just say, we don't have confidence in you. It doesn't mean you're guilty of something in particular. We've decided your judgment's not good enough. And so you can remove the guy. And so then you think about the idea of the legislative, executive, and judicial powers. The legislative power is given is from God, and you're carefully applying his law, and you can systematize that and capture it and put it into constitutional form. But you're careful to not just invent powers all the time and things for the government to do. And so if you have a very limited sense of government in terms of the law of God telling us what the purpose of government is and what its just powers are, and realizing that the delegation of those powers moves through the process of electing people by representation through local and then more and more distant courts. And you have moderators who are princes on those courts, and you have a clerk who keeps the record. That's the, the way that goes, and the executive power is carried out by that guy who's heading up that council to deal with the emergencies that arise. And crime's an emergency, and war's an emergency. And ultimately, when you call the army together, and you have a declaration of war because you're dealing with a, a war that's just, what you have is the election of officers by the same sort of order. And so God had established a system for the election of officers in tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands. Uh, Dave, it, it sounded like to me that you just described a Presbyterian. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that uh, <laughs> the, 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 two, the two public forms of authority, the church and the state, are both designed to have rule by councils that are meant to have very limited powers. And those two public authorities are to exist and in a Christian nation. They would be very similar in terms of the areas and peoples they represent. All right. Um, so I think I understood that. <laughs> I have to go, I'm going to have to go back and listen to some of that myself. So then you just have a, so then you're not, you don't vote on a pre. Well, I guess you kind of vote on a president or the people who you vote for vote for, a uh, person to head up the nation is that what's was that what I'm hearing it how we get to a president or what, yeah. we, what you would consider a president okay so all right think so about, then think about how the electoral college works right you you, yep. you have people in a state or whatever electing people to go vote now we all try to like bind their activity to be launched to what the people said but the whole idea of an electoral college was to was to make it so that people who were able to judge the character of people because they they interacted more with each other were the ones that were actually making the decision. The whole reason that uh, senators were chosen by state legislatures was so that basically people who had worked legislatively with a guy could say, yeah, this guy, we trust him to go represent the state at the federal level. So those are examples that were in our Constitution to have the same sort of process of choice. So you elect the guy at the neighborhood level. He elects a guy at the town level. He elects a guy to go to the county level. He elects a guy to go to the state level. He elects a guy to go to the federal level. And that's and how you get general assembly. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. So I want to, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. I don't want them to dis, uh, to deter us from the main point. Okay. Could you work a little bit? I got to talk about David. Don't let me forget. I want to talk about how 
um, under a, this kind of national covenanting, um, denominations get to work in this because there's been some talk, a lot of Baptists who are scared even of the Christian nationalism are like, if we go this way, we're going to get drowned again. Um, you know, let's not do that uh, or flogged or whatever. So I want to talk about kind of how underneath, underneath this kind of covenanting, what, what kind of reality exists for um, uh, religious freedom, as people like to call it, right? So we got to talk about religious freedom. Um, but first, could you, as you think about national covenanting, what you've described about national covenanting, can you overlay it? It sounds like we have a lot of the, we share a lot of the same terminology in our current situation, our current government, but it's just, it hasn't been observed properly. Is that fair to say? Or are there things that need to change in order to, sh- that um, would it be a drastic change to go from where we are to national covenanting and what would those be? Yeah, I mean, so on a really basic level, we have a national covenant and every time somebody swears to uphold the constitution, they're covenanting. And so that act of affirming the covenant is occurring regularly now. But I don't know about you. I have my suspicions that some of the people who have taken that oath have failed to read the thing. And so if that's the case, or if they have read it, that's even more terrifying. And so we have dramatically moved away from that covenant. That covenant in many ways relates to what the Bible says. It, it, it overlaps to what the Bible says ought to be done in many ways. It's an imperfect document, but it has captured a lot of the growth of Protestant understanding of government that has occurred over time. And in addition to that, if we're thinking about how do we reform, well, one of the things you do is you, you encourage people to, to keep the covenant that we have insofar as it is lawful and encourage them to repent of covenant breaking. I mean, lawful in terms of the law of God. And then in addition to that, what you do is you say, we need to advance the covenant. So the major examples that we see in the Bible of national covenanting, we have the founding of the covenant in terms of what we see with Abraham. We see that with, with Moses and the giving of the, the law to separate out Israel as a people, as a national people. And then you also see examples where you see the nation has fallen into apostasy and decline, and there has to be reformation. And so we have the example with Jehoiada. We have the example with Josiah. We have the example with Hezekiah. And there are other examples that we see uh, at various points, but those are the most dramatic ones. Um, And so, you know, David himself is, you know, entering into covenant with God where he sees the temple, you know, built. And that's a a sort of renewing and expanding of the covenant. But there is this this covenanting act that occurs. So when Hezekiah or Josiah have national covenanting, they are self-consciously renewing the covenant to the point that it had been reached in terms of King David. And they're reforming things back to there. So they're removing idolatry from the land. They're removing wickedness. They're advancing the law of God. Um, and they're seeing a restoration and reformation that's occurring. And so you see the same thing with Nehemiah when he comes into the land after the destruction of Jerusalem. And you have Nehemiah coming back and he's involved in rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple. Um, with Ezra rebuilding the temple. And you have this, this covenanting that's going on there. Um, and you see the law of God being brought back in and being applied. 
And so there's sort of this process of working through it and seeing reform happen. So what I would want to say is we need to preserve the things that are good about the order that was received here in America, and we need to advance to be better. And so what we need to do is to repent of our sins as a nation. We need to repent of the perversion that has advanced in the land. We need to repent of the murder of the unborn that has occurred in the land. We need to repent of the national rejection of Christ and the throwing off of Christianity and the way that the courts have denied that the word of God is the highest authority. And we need to repent of all those things, publicly acknowledge that they were wrong in our, in our governing bodies, and to acknowledge Christ as King of Kings, to acknowledge his word as the authority as the highest law. And we need to say we have the goal of seeing Christian liberty preserved in the land and biblical justice administered. And so when we talk about liberty and freedom of religion, all liberty, all Christian liberty is the right to do righteousness. And if you read the book of Exodus, the whole book of Exodus is about let my people go, let them be free so that they can serve me. That's what God says. The freedom is the freedom to do righteousness. Preach, preach up. And so that freedom to do righteousness is what we want to be able to do. We want to be free from that oppression. We want to be free from those who are opposing that. And we want to be empowered to do what's right. So the question is, what's the height that we've attained to? And our goal has to be to capture that and to advance beyond. And, you know, in talking to Baptists, I would encourage them to work with us to form a civil covenant that helps us to repent together of some things and to commit in the process of debate about the theological and ecclesiological differences that we have and to seek to see Christ acknowledged as King of Kings. And if they're unwilling to see Christ acknowledged as King of Kings, the King over the nations, victorious over every nation, including the United States, and to see his word rule here, then frankly, let's find better partners. Mm, um, sorry, that was an accident. I didn't mean to hit that button. Uh, that was totally an accident. Uh, so, <laughs> so David, now, okay. I think I, I absolutely agree with you on that, but now some of the, some of the things that I've seen from other Christians, which is what I call holding, holding water for pagan gods is that, well, what about the other religions in your nation? How does that work? Cause there's freedom of religion, right? Does national covenanting, how does it deal with other nations? And I see, I'm, I'm, I'm going to let you answer this, but before you do, I see Stephen Wolf's in the room. I see Nate Fish in the room. Salute you guys. Um, and anybody else who wants to throw their hands up and talk, ask a question or insert part of the conversation, something else to the part of the conversation, throw them up after David answers my question. I'll let you guys in and talk. And I'm sorry, brother. Can you repeat the question one more time? It was how does freedom Yeah, the question, work? yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, for instance, there was just a, a story that I saw asking whether or not we should have the Muslim call of prayer being heard in public. No. Okay, well, yeah, that was my response. But, but that's just an example of how far then do other religions get to partake in this national covenanting? Um, do they get to live in this environment? What is the, what is the makeup of the people 
And I guess in one sense, who's in, who's out, and um, and, and 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 to track that all the way down to, well, at what point does your Presbyterianism become the standard, and does everybody have to be Presbyterian to live here? That's what some of the Baptists fear too. Sure. Okay. So so first, um, when we're dealing with freedom of religion, freedom is freedom to do what's right, and Christian freedom is not an excuse for sin. It is not license to do wickedness. Christian freedom is not the freedom to commit idolatry. And I know that Americans don't typically like that answer, but it's the answer that comes from the mouth of God. And the mouth of God says you should not commit, adul- you should not commit idolatry, right? No idols. And in addition to that, it deals with idolatry in terms of there's idolatry of the heart where you can you know, properly value th- you know, probably improperly value things. And so the idolatry of the heart is when, when every sin comes out of. Not every sin is a criminal act, but idolatry can be criminal. And it becomes criminal in terms of when you see behavior that is externalized, that is false worship, false gods. And so those behaviors, like the calling to prayer for a false god, those are things that the Bible tells us to deal with in terms of criminal activity. And this has been the position of Christians throughout the world and throughout history. And the idea that we don't deal with the first table in terms of any sort of penalties is not a position that you would find many Christians having thought to be reasonable historically. Now, in addition to that, there's this question of what participation, what place do these people have who are who are not Christian, in the Christian nation. Well, what they have is the ability to, we're not, we're not, it's not an inquisition. You're not going out there trying to find every heretical thought that anybody has. What you're doing is you're saying, here are the public laws, here are behaviors that are not acceptable, and these are the criminal behaviors. These will be punished. And so when you do that, you have a list of the things that are considered criminal versus not, and you have that clearly dealt with, then people who commit crimes should be punished. And so when we look at the law order, a stranger in the land, an alien in the land is allowed to be here. They cannot be compelled or coerced to believe Christianity or to practice in it. But the practice of criminal behaviors that are externalized, not thoughts, are the things that the state has to deal with. And so you don't simply have a freedom to do anything or to have any sort of religious activity. What you have is a differentiation between the established religion and other religions. So national covenanting establishes Christianity as the nation's religion. Absolutely. So the, uh, the word religion means a, a practice and a doctrine that are binding. Um, so the idea is, the state religion um, is the religion that is acknowledged. So um, if our constitution started with an acknowledgement of Christ or the authority of his word, that would be a far better thing. That would make the Christianity of that covenant uh, far more explicit. But again, common law references Christian law. The idea that Sunday is a day that's getting skipped over um, for veto countdowns. The idea that it's signed in the year of our Lord 
right? This is the context of a Christian people. Um, and so you have all of that. And so it's obvious that it's a Christian covenant, a Christian covenant. George Washington starts when he swears in, he swears in the sight of God because he knows it would be idolatrous to swear without referencing God. So you have these actions that are occurring that help us to see that this is obviously a Christian nation historically, but it's not as explicit as it ought to have been. That was a failure and we need to go further in. And so there needs to be an establishment of that. And at the time, the states variously had established Christian churches. And so the issue was to not establish it at the federal level because there was disagreement about it. And there was an effort to covenant without having the establishment of a particular church. And I think that that, that way that was handled um, and the way it was dealt with historically was a failing as well. Rather than constitutionally ordering to make it so there could never be an establishing of the religion, there should have been a reliance upon the reality that if a state believed that the wrong religion was being established, they should have seceded. And that's one of the reasons why I think nationalism is inferior to the idea of a national covenanting or a civic covenanting is because I don't care nearly so much about unity with a national people, an ethnos, as I do a civil order established by a swearing to uphold what has been revealed in the Christian religion. And so I want a free country. I want a Christian country. I want my children to inherit a Christian people and a civil order. And I don't care if it's the whole of the union. I don't care if it's a part of the union, but I want it to be something. And so I want to see a Christian people, and I don't care how much of a national group is in it. I care about it existing and having a Christian support. Mm. Okay, so I just got to say, my boy Scott Annual just came in the room. Uh, salute, Scott. Uh, you know, I just want you to know you messed up not sending me a copy of your book that you're releasing, which is kind of on this topic. So if you want to jump in, feel free to jump in anytime in the conversation as well. Throw your hand up. Uh, you got Scott, you got Stephen Wolf, you got uh, Nate Fisher. You guys, if you're just listening, great, great having you here. Um, David, I was going to ask, I guess you kind of already hit a little bit of some of the difference between Christian nationalism and national covenanting, but it sounds like there's a lot of connections there. Can you, from, could you, if somebody is listening to this and they're like, man, national covenanting really sounds legit. What does it look like to get to something? Cause I, I was, I said this on Twitter earlier today. There's no question. There's no question whatsoever. If we're under the judgment of God, I think every Christian agrees with that reality, right? Like that we're under the judgment of God. We can see it clear as day. We look at Romans one and we're just like, man, it's not we're going to get it. Romans 1 is evidence. We already got it because we have that here right now. So there's no question about that. So then if we're under the judgment of God, what does it look like to get under the blessings of God from our current position? And if you can't get under the blessings of God, then it must be that you can maintain that reality as a nation, right? So those, those are realities I was just listening to some from, from John MacArthur, who I love, but he's like, um, a Roman, he's like, America is under the judgment of God. Like, man, I think he's right. But then if you can be under those judgments, then you can get out from underneath them and you can be a nation that is blessed by God. So how do we, and so then the argument only becomes this for me, David, which is we're only arguing in our current conversations is what does it look like then to get out from underneath the blessing of God? I'm sorry, out from underneath the curses of God into the blessings of God. That's the only thing we're really arguing, and we're debating on what that actually looks like. So I want you to lay out from your position what it looks like then to get out from underneath the curses of God into the blessings of God, and that would be 
leading us closer to national um, or national covenanting? We would leave the curses of God by publicly acknowledging the civil authority, our sins against the Lord God Almighty, appealing to his mercy in Christ, acknowledging what ought to be done. And this can be done in stair steps. But the point is, ideally, we would acknowledge our failures and repent and look and publicly confess that Christ is our only hope and confess our need for the mercy of God in Christ. And then what we would do is we would seek to work, to go back to the best things that have been done and to go further. And so if we can't do that done at a national level, a federal level, then we should do it at a state level. If we can't do it at a state level, we should do it at a county level. If you can't do it at a county level, you should do it at the city or town level. And if you can't do that, if you can't win, you need to retreat and consolidate someplace where you can. And so the process of repentance and avoiding that curse looks like seeking to see a Christian civil order put into place. And that can take lots of steps. It can take steps like you learn skills, you develop resources in your household, you're t training up your children, you're a faithful member of a church, you're evangelizing and discipling, and you're seeking to be able to have the ability to see a civil order put into place at the very local level that is Christian. But you need to be working with that goal explicitly in mind. And we need to be unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of the law of God, and a willingness to say, the only reason I know what is just is because God has revealed it in his holy word. I'm surprised that you ended there. I know you want to say more. There are lots of things to say. I could go for two hours, Knox. <laughs> All right. So I just invited, you know, um, if Stephen, if you're still there. Okay. They, those guys didn't want to jump in. Anybody else want to jump in? Ask David any questions. Uh, feel free to go ahead and shoot for that now. Um, David, I guess I would like to know a little more if there's more of the differences between, because when I'm listening to you, Guys, I'm watching right now. If you want to jump in, ask any questions, raise your hand. I got you. Oh, I'll, also, I got to say, um, Scott sent me, he's going to be sending me a copy of his book. See what happened? I love these spaces. Get to do stuff like that and get a copy of the book and shame somebody. I don't mind shaming people into sending me books. No problem whatsoever. Uh, maybe we can have a spaces with him and talk about kind of some of his position. But um, well on the book. Uh, what'd you say? I said, well played on the book. Well, thank you. Thank you. I do my best as I can. Um, what is more of the differences between what you see and the conversation of Christian nationalism versus national covenanting? Because when I talk to people, there's the group of people who are slandering, I think, some of the Christian nationalists. And I'm like, well, no, that's not what they're saying. And I don't think that's fair. Um, I, and I, because I think they're having a hard time understanding some of the Christian nationalists. And that's a whole nother conversation. But then when I hear the, my Christian nationalist friends talk um, they sound somewhat like what you're saying. There's a lot of shared ideas there together with what you're saying and what you're talking about versus how people are representing them. So what are the, what are the particular differences between the two of you guys? And I loved how you started off earlier. For people who weren't here, David made the point, and maybe you can just say the point about, you know, hey, if this is something that's stopping you from identifying with your brothers, you got to knock that off. Yeah, if a liberal asks me, am I a fundamentalist, I'm going to say, yes, I am. 
But am I going to walk around introducing myself and saying I'm a I'm a fundamentalist Christian? Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, but if I, I believe in the infallibility of the scriptures, substitutionary atonement, the virgin birth, you know, all the seven fundamentals that are going to be listed out that make it so I'm a fundamentalist. Sure. Is that the label I'm going to prefer to use? No, I'm going to say I'm Reformed and Presbyterian. I'm going to talk about that kind of stuff. I'm going to talk about being a Christian if somebody has no reason to understand what that even means. So I'm going to use a label that's useful for the time, and I'm going to talk to people with my own brothers about what is the civil order we should be seeking. I'm going to talk about national covenanting, or I'm going to talk about civil covenanting. Um, so Christian nationalism, again, I think there's three possible ways of defining nationalism. It's either an ethnic or ancestry-oriented thing. It can be right. the idea of a shared culture, language typically being kind of the tip of the spear there, or it can be a shared civil order. And if it's a shared civil order, I'm talking about the same thing. But, for example, I have, uh, uh, I have Stephen Wolf's book, and in there the nation is talked about in terms of not just the civil order, but I al- it also talks about this idea of sort of the uh, the people themselves, their customs as a people. Um, and so I agree with those things should be Christian as well. But what I'm trying to do is to say, hey, here's a prescription for the state. We all agree the household and the individual should be Christian. We all agree the church should be Christian. And we all are saying the state should be Christian. And what I'm saying is that the tool of reformation, the tool of reformation in the state is to engage in sworn reacknowledgement of the lordship of Christ publicly by public authorities. And if we need to, what we need to be willing to do is to see people saying we are united to covenant breakers, and those covenant breakers are people who are trying to use the civil order to oppress us. So we need the lesser magistrate to be willing to step in. And also, there has to be a willingness to say any system that is broken beyond repair, that cannot be reformed, we need to find pockets where we can reform and we need to refuse obedience to the beast. And so the idea of a beast, and you see it throughout the scriptures, is this idea of a humanistic state. And so you see humanistic states in terms of the book of Daniel, and you see the idea of the humanistic state of Rome uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem. And we need to realize that any state that is a humanistic state, a a state that's oppressing and anti-Christian, is a beast system. And so my concern is to say what I'm talking about narrowly is the civil order and the process by which you join that civil order and reform that. And the, the, the tool that nobody's talking about is national covenanting. You write out a covenant that you acknowledge the things to repent of and you swear to positive duties. And those positive duties can be captured in the four bullet points of acknowledging Christ as king, his word is authoritative, Christian liberty to be preserved, and biblical justice to be administered. And so if we do that, if we positively swear to do those things, a part of what we need to recognize is that we also need to swear to defend each other. So if they go and they try to arrest your pastor when he's preaching out of you know, the book of Romans, and he gets to the parts that they call hate speech, you say, why are you trying to kidnap my pastor? Just because you have a badge and a gun doesn't mean that you're acting as a lawful authority. And this is a part of common law that is adopted and referenced by the Constitution, the common law, that a person with a badge, when they act in an illegal way, they are not acting as a part of the state. They are instead acting criminally as individuals. And so we need to swear to defend each other. And we need to swear to advance these goals 
and we need to swear to work through conflict together and to seek to see higher reformation reached. I think if we could see pastors encouraging public discussion about civil covenanting and people getting together to talk about this, as opposed to just having lots of conversations, if the goal were to get people to swear to pursue this goal together, that is a different goal. And that is what I'm saying is the step. Hey, Jamie, mute your mic for a second. All right. I muted it for him. How about that? Um, David, go ahead. You can continue. Okay. No, that's it. This, that's that's no. it. Uh, no. uh, Jimmy, you're, I'm getting feedback from you, so I'm going to have to remove you. Let's try that back again. Um, anybody else want to jump in? Dave, uh, Dave I did want to, well, if anybody, uh, I was trying to get Nate in here. He had to, he had to, um, he had to run. Um, Wolf, I made a mistake. I tried to, Stephen Wolf, I tried to send you an invite and I didn't actually send it. So that was on me. Check again. If you were trying to get, jump in the conversation, feel free to jump in. Um, David, I think some people are, um, uh, how, what would you say to people who are like, you know what? Are you really trying, um, is this, are you trying to observe the scriptures as the foundation for making all law, biblical law? What do you say to people who have a problem with that? Because I think a lot of people are like, whoa, um, we have precedent. We have other things here that have helped us um, come to these, to come to our current modern understanding of law. You're trying to go here and, and just use what the, the Ten Commandments and that's it. How are you trying? What do you say to people who are concerned about you using biblical standards as the way, or should I say, biblical law as a way to judge all things? Yeah, I think that um, there's a fear of the Bible, and that's because the God of the Bible is terrifying. And what we need to recognize is that we are either going to have the law of God or we're going to have the law of somebody else. And this faith that there is a better law order than the law of God is idolatrous. If we're going to say that we should rely upon human tradition called precedent, or we're going to rely upon the stuff that human beings invented out of their own wicked hearts, or we're going to rely upon the doctrines of demons for what the state ought to do, and that we don't like the Bible because what the Bible says is not what I prefer, then now you've made your own heart the judge of what ought to occur. We have no idea what the state should do unless God has told us. God is the one who gives the state. And so the desire to follow human traditions or to be doing what you're comfortable with or to have freedom to be able to perform uh, wicked criminal activities that we have a preference for or we think it's going to be too mean to punish criminal activities, this is all silliness and folly. And the Bible is the only place that we're going to get the wisdom from heaven to know how men ought to be governed and to know the difference between a right and a criminal action. And so the Bible gives huge, broad swaths of freedom, but all people focus on are the precious sins that they want to preserve. And they scream. The governors scream because they think that the government 
established in the Bible doesn't have enough power. And they want to have the, the right to commit the sin of oppression and to exercise arbitrary power. People who are engaged in criminal perversion scream because they want their perversions protected. And people who want to put forward idolatry scream because they want their idolatry protected. And so the question we have mm. to ask is this. When God established the form of government that was given in Israel, was it just then? If it was just then, is it just now? And if it's not just now, what standard are you using to judge that? Where does your standard of justice come from? What's the purpose of the state? And so these are fundamental questions about the nature of the state, the purpose of the state, the means the state has authorization to use. And people just seem to be okay with this idea of the state acting in arbitrary ways. People, if they critically analyze their actual doctrine of the state, they're going to go, what do I believe authorizes one man to use the sword against another? Because the state is coercion. The state is force. And that is not meant to be a pejorative thing. It's not meant to be negative. We need force against criminals. You need force against invading armies. But what can justify the use of force? And so when is it okay to force somebody to give you money? Because taxation is that. You're forcing somebody to give you money. And so you mentioned before, you know, some people don't have any, any theology to determine how much taxation is actually just. Well, the Bible makes it clear. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, if somebody, if a king taxes you at 10% or higher, it's supposed to be a horrifying thing. That's one of the curses. He's going to take 10%. Right? And the 10% is supposed to be horrifying because the tithe is 10%. What does he think he is? God. And so the idea of what kind of a state is tyrannical and oppressive, we have no basis to judge and no standard to use if it has not been revealed from heaven. I don't know how you argue with that. I really don't. Um, David, um, I know, knowing you, I know that you prep for this. I just want to tell everybody there's a book that they can get. Um, Brian, Brian M. Schwartley. Um, this is a great book, National Covenanting Christ's Victory Over the Nations. I think a lot of people that are talking Christian nationalism really are talking national covenanting and don't know it. And there has it. Yeah, I just think they don't know it. And there are some people inside of that movement that I don't think are going the same direction <laughs> either. But I will say this. Get this book. It's a great book. I, I David, I, why has this idea and concept been separate from, I haven't talked to any other Presbyterians that I know of that are thinking like this, you know, and this is the covenanters have gotten such a bad name from even their own um, progeny, you know, on according to this idea, how did this get lost? Cause this seems, we seem to think it works really good for a lot of our Presbytery concepts or Presbyterian government. How did this get lost? And why aren't we, even talking like this as Presbyterians? It got lost because the American Presbyterian Church adopted the Philadelphia Confession to replace the 1643 Westminster Confession, yeah. which abandons the idea of the civil magistrate dealing with the first table of the law. It was written ambiguously so as to allow people to hold to both views, but American Presbyterianism rewrote its confession of faith to match with the new national constitution. And that was an abandonment of the high water mark. And 
people didn't want to talk about it. And if you talked about national covenanting, I mean, the covenanters protested a few things. They said, first of all, you had you had you kind of split amongst covenanters here, but covenanters out of Britain said there was a covenanted uniformity that was attained to in Britain of doctrine, worship, and government for the church, and the civil order was to be reformed and to maintain the the covenanted uniformity. And so there's a separation of church and state in terms of separate institutions, but both institutions deal with the first table of the law. And so what you see happening is you have Americans choosing to no longer push for that. And the American Constitution, you know, some of the response of some Presbyterians when they saw the American Constitution was to say that the American Constitution was atheistic. Um, <laughs> so, so the, you know, there's my response is to say, by comparison, if you compare it, to what the Westminster Assembly was doing, and you look at what the Parliament in Britain did, and the National Covenant that was attained to, it looks atheistic in comparison for sure. And so I think it's a sinful compromise that was a declining away from the straightforward, explicit Protestantism. I think that there's some weak sauce there, so I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like it's not uh, a Protestant uh, heritage there, but it is certainly a compromising weak sauce uh, running away from the heights that were attained to. And so I think it was sin to decline away. Um, and I think the Presbyterian church followed suit. And one of the other things, one of the other sins that was um, a, a point of compromise uh, that you see in the American constitution is of course, chattel slavery. And so the institution of chattel slavery was a, a wicked thing to allow to continue. We know Christian slavery is slavery for crimes and debts and it's limited. Um, and chattel slavery was an unlimited slavery that made people into property and made it so that there was an inability um, for a proper way to reform that. So the running away from Christianity, the, um, the establishment in the law order of chattel slavery in a protected way, um, and we, we look at this, and these are national sins um, that we, you know, there's obviously been lots of repenting about the sin of chattel slavery, um, but there's insufficient and not public repenting for the uh, fact that our Constitution runs away from an explicit Christianity. And so mm. those, those things, those are failings. And what we need to do is we need to return to, we need to return to the covenanted uniformity that has been attained to, uh, which includes the 1643 Westminster Confession and the idea that the state is supposed to deal with the first table. And so we can all run away from that if we want to, if we want God to curse our land, and if we want to make sure that our children don't inherit a Christian nation, we can all run away from it. But I'll tell you what, Lord God Almighty will raise up a people who will worship him in spirit and truth, and he will see Christian nations established in the earth. Every nation mm. will bow the knee to Christ. There will be covenanted Christian government over every speck of land. And if we don't want to be a part of that, shame on us. But if we want to be a part of it, we need to acknowledge it and pursue it wholeheartedly and unashamedly. I, I, I know you're Presbyterian, David, and you don't know what to do with that, but uh, yeah, let the church say amen. Um, it, I want to I end here. Um, David, everybody, I'm uh, ar500.com. What's the, what's the website there? To yeah, your Armored company. Repo Armored Republic. Yes, Armored Armor Republic.com. All right. Armorepublic.com. 
I mean, I, I want to see, I want, I, everybody go follow David Reese on Twitter, on X, because I'm doing this for a reason. David doesn't tweet nearly as much as he should. You know what he does? He calls me and we talk, and we talk for like two hours too. So, and he needs to be tweeting. He should be tweeting, and he's not tweeting. He needs to tweet a lot more. So go follow Mr. David Reese, real David Reese is his handle. I'm saying this because I know you're on Spaces, so you can go right there, but there are going to be people on the podcast that's going to go to that's not going to know. So I'm telling you, real David Reese, that's at real David Reese. Go follow him. Go to Armor Republic, get you some body armor. Um, David, your church address, name, so people can know where you're at if they're in Arizona. Uh, PuritanPHX.com. So PuritanPHX.com. Um, you can uh, see us there. You're welcome to worship with us in Phoenix. We're right at uh, Northern and the 51. So that's, again, PuritanPHX.com. And so here's where I want to end it, because um, everything that we talked about with National Covenanting, and when you look at our current situation where we're at right now, it looks almost impossible to get there. Um, and that's why some people are kind of like, well, whatever about Christian nationalism. I mean, getting there, it just seems ridiculous. How are you going to get there to do that? Um, but one of the things that I talk to people about when it comes to theonomy is that people are always looking, they become theonomists and the first thing they want to do is they want to go start putting laws on everybody else. And they want to go run and say, Hey, you, uh, let's, let's just throw this in and start implementing it. But I always think that the first place you want to practice theonomy is with yourself first and then in your home. Because if you're not practicing it there, you're not going to get it right everywhere else. Matter of fact, it doesn't even flow out of your own home. You won't implement it anywhere else. So you got to start at home. You got to start where you're at and what you actually have access to, to begin to use God's law the way uh, and, and honor God the way he, that he requires you to honor him and live the way he requires you to live before him. You have to start with where you have authority at, where you have authority over, and then implement God's law there. How does one start implementing what they understand about national covenanting in their own home. Uh, you asked how, how, how does national covenanting start in your own home for the last part Yeah, of the because, I, because I don't think that, I think the way that we think about it was like, okay, now everybody go out there and let's go do the thing. But I think that's the wrong way to think about this. I think it needs to be starting somewhere where you're locally at, you're the first place that you have authority and influence too. That's right. So, so you have to govern your home that way. So if you're not doing family worship on a nightly basis, do it. If you're not doing mm. private worship on a daily basis, do it. You're not going to have the strength to lead if you're not eating the Word of God every day. And you're not going to see your family in good order if you don't teach them the Word every day. And if you want to see reformation in the land, judgment starts in the house of God. And so make sure to, when you're, when you're at church, when you hear the preaching, don't tune out. Judge the words you are commanded when you hear somebody preaching to judge and search the scriptures to see if those things are so. And you are commanded to worship God in spirit and truth. Judge the worship. And you are commanded to see that Christ's order is established in the church. And so judge the form of government. Search the scriptures. Find out about these things. See reformation in the church. Have conversations. Honor lawful officers Guys that are good officers, good teachers, honor them, be loyal to them, work with them. And then one thing that also is forgotten is that businesses are a part of the household. Mm. You're a Christian and you own a business. 
make sure your Christian, your business is Christian. And you make sure to govern it with God's word. Don't be afraid. Make it so that your Christianity is explicit in your business. And make sure that your policies don't contradict the Bible. And so as you govern yourself and your family, including your estate, with the word of God, you will find that the law of God is a tool of dominion that teaches you to rule. And the Lord will teach your fingers to fight and your hands to war. And then you will see that if you encourage the church to have right doctrine, worship, and government, that the praises of God's people will be a sword. And it will cause enemies to fall. And so what we will find is that we coordinate together as we see households put into order, individuals governing themselves well, churches in good condition. As there are Christian businesses, they produce capital that makes it so that we can engage in public service as officers in the church and state, and we don't have to be dependent upon somebody else paying for things. And so what we need to do is to expand our authority and apply the law in increasing detail in every place that is under our authority. And as we apply the law of God in every place that's under our authority, what we're going to find is that power comes to us or people kill us. And if they kill us, God will give us a crown. And if power mm. comes to us, then we will see that there are opportunities to serve in greater ways. And so we either want to suffer for righteousness sake or we want to subdue under our feet the enemies of God. And the mm. only of the courage to subdue the enemies of God is by being consistent in the spheres where you can practice it, where you have control, and don't let the boogeyman of some, you know, three-letter agency prevent you from obeying God. Obey God. Let the three-letter agency come. Uh, so, David, if we, I think we kind of just scratched the surface a little bit with National Covenants. And if we were going to do this next week, if you had time in your schedule, which I hope you would, maybe we can do even video next time. What would be the next thing to talk about in, in this context? I think the if we were going to go through this and try to talk about the process of building out um, power to rule, it would be valuable to go through the covenant institutions and to talk about the individual, then the household, and the church, and then the state in more detail. And so I would say the next time we should talk about the individual as an image bearer with the law as authority grant and how he is a prophet, priest, and king, and how the individual is to rule with those offices to take over the world. Okay, David, put it on your calendar. Let's talk about that next week and do this all over again. Bet? I'm trying to get an acknowledgement on the show. I'm just trying to get make sure that I hear a yes. Let's do it. I want to do another show. Next week, <laughs> I've looked out like crazy. I think I okay. could probably do it in, in two weeks. I have a son that's getting married in two weeks, uh, but I think I could pull it off uh, sometime during that week. So let me, we'll have to set a thank time. But yeah, so thank you. we can do another show. Let's do it. Your cell phone don't work at the wedding? I just don't understand. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm officiating, Knox. <laughs> hey, appreciate it, brother. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love you, brother. All right. Every knee shall bow.